Welcome to this WLIW-FM special program about harm reduction and the opioid crisis in our area and New York State. I'm Christopher Booker, and before we begin, we wanted to let you know that if you or someone you know needs help, call the New York State Hope Line at 877-8-HOPE-NEW-YORK or text HOPE-NEW-YORK 467-369. Resources also are available from the New York State Office of Addiction Services and Supports at oasis.newyork.gov. Funding for this program is provided by the New York State Education Department. The numbers from 2021 were bleak. 16 New Yorkers were dying every day from an overdose, one person every three hours. Just five years ago, it was one person every eight. For the first time ever, the federal government has begun to fund and promote harm reduction as part of ongoing efforts to combat what is now a historic number of overdose deaths. Here in New York, this change has resulted in millions of additional dollars for a broad set of tactics that include the widespread distribution of the overdose-reversing drug naloxone to the expansion of needle exchange programs. For the past year, I have been meeting with a broad group of people from the state's Office of Addiction Services and Supports to researchers, to the police, and individuals in recovery to explore this tactical change and attempt to understand how, if at all, it can help the city and state turn the tide on a relentlessly tragic situation. I started with New York's newly appointed Associate Commissioner for Harm Reduction. The number one message that we always give is never use alone. That's the number one harm reduction strategy. If they hear nothing else, never use alone, because when you use alone, there's no one there to respond in case you overdose. For a New York State employee to be speaking this freely and openly about how individuals should approach their drug use is a testament to a changing tide. But for Mary Brewster, New York's newly appointed Associate Commissioner for Harm Reduction, such a frank and honest conversation is long overdue. We know that people will always use drugs. And so if we know that people are always going to use drugs, how do we get them to use drugs as safely as possible? And recognizing that every single life has value and we should do everything we can to save that life. As part of her position, Rooster will spend much of the next year visiting rehabilitation centers across the state in promotion of harm reduction. On a snowy day last December, she met with the Twin County Recovery Services in Hudson, New York. After touring the facility, she sat down with the staff making sure all of the moms have naloxone and know how to use it and have these conversations with their kids that they know are using opioids of, if you're going to use, let me know so that I can be ready with naloxone in case. This frank approach to drug use is a central tenet of harm reduction, which accepts that people will use drugs and tactically, what is most important is to keep them alive. Born during the early days of the HIV-AIDS epidemic, harm reduction played a crucial role in the dramatic fall in HIV infections amongst intravenous drug users. As HIV spread through communities, activists in some major cities launched clean needle campaigns. In San Francisco, the city's AIDS Foundation even created a mascot, Bleach Man, who appeared on posters and cheap late-night television commercials. Now, the San Francisco AIDS Foundation presents the Adventures of Bleach Man. Cleaning needles is easy. It won't hurt the rig, and it kills the AIDS virus. Here's how. While harm reduction has been used for decades, the Biden administration was the first to use the term as part of its 2021 federal budget. The inclusion comes as research continues to point to the efficacy of the approach. Nearly 30 years of research show that users of syringe service programs, or SSPs, are five times more likely to enter drug treatment and about three times more likely to stop using drugs than those who don't use SSPs. How important was it to have the Biden administration use the term harm reduction? Huge. It was huge for the federal government to once say the word and then to fund it. Part of the $42.5 billion budget for the National Drug Control Agencies earmarked millions of dollars to improve access to the overdose-reversing drug naloxone while expanding needle exchange programs 
and widely distributing fentanyl test strips across the United States. The addiction crisis has already taken so much, and I grieve with all those who have lost someone. We also celebrate those who are recovering. We hold them in our hearts and commit ourselves to helping more families know the joy and relief of recovery. To those still struggling, I want you to know that I see you. We need to do everything we can to really help keep people alive. Dr. Chinazo Cunningham was appointed commissioner of New York's Office of Addiction Services and Supports, or OASIS, by Governor Hochul in January 2022. She is Mary Brewster's boss. You've been in this position for about a year. Where would you say things are in New York in terms of what you hope to achieve? We are in the worst you know, overdose epidemic ever on record. In New York State, 16 people die every day of overdose. So, you know, this is involving mothers, fathers, children, aunts, uncles, cousins, neighbors, coworkers. There's no place that this doesn't touch. And I think that there's no family or individual that this doesn't touch. While Cunningham has been working in addiction services for decades, she says the official adoption of harm reduction strategies is substantial. There's a ton of evidence, decades of evidence across the world that shows that harm reduction efforts are really effective. And so this is also, you know, using a data-driven approach and evidence-based strategies is absolutely what we need to be doing. This is a medical condition. We need science to help guide our work. This is not about, you know, uh, morality and weakness or strength. It's about a medical condition. So we need to, you know, approach it in that way. What's a greater challenge, working with the community of users or working with the community of non-users uh, as it relates to understanding and accepting harm reduction as a policy? We all grew up hearing the same messages in this country. So doctors, lay people, and people who use drugs, right? And those messages were, you know, just say no, and it's, um, you know, this is your brain on drugs, which frankly, are harmful. And so, so I think across the board, it's a little bit of unlearning um, what those earlier messages conveyed. I got this tattoo before I got the job, but I literally have a tattoo that says any positive change. It's my harm reduction tattoo. <laughs> so. When you look at the current landscape, how do things look to you? So in five years, we've gone in New York City from one person dies every eight hours to one person dies every three hours. And so it was really important for Biden's administration to recognize harm reduction is legitimate and to actually put money into our field. You can't help but be optimistic about that and hopeful. I have to be hopeful because if I'm not hopeful, what's it all for? Like we have to think that we can make change. But there are those in New York who, while welcoming the official policy change, really haven't changed the way they do things. They have been practicing harm reduction with or without any national endorsement for decades. Okay, I'm just going to bring this whole thing, actually. Okay. Here we go. On a cold day last December in far Rockaway, Queens, Janie Simmons started her outreach, as she's done many times before, at McDonald's. Her good friend Robert Keyless waited outside while she distributed bags filled with naloxone and fentanyl test strips as part of her organization, Rockaway Gets Naloxone. She first met a young pregnant woman. Now let me get you, these are uh, fentanyl test strips. Are you familiar with those? Do you know how to use them? Okay. So you're getting good medical care? You're getting good medical care for the baby and for you? Yes. Simmons, who is an associate research scientist at New York University, has a special arrangement with the manager here, who allows her to connect with the using community who gather in and around the restaurant. Funded through the city, Simmons started Rockaway Gets Naloxone in 2017. McDonald's is just the first stop. Next is a nearby park. With Keyless by her side, Simmons approaches a group of men and attempts to give them naloxone and the test strips. So if someone's overdosing, if you see someone here in the park that's overdosing, how long have you been doing this work? Pretty much three decades in if we conclude HIV prevention, because I'm primarily an HIV prevention researcher, but I started working in opioid prevention, I don't know, about 
about 2013, I think. So taking what you knew from your HIV AIDS work into this the world, how different is that? Well, I think I started working in um, opioid overdose prevention because I began to recognize that this, the sense that, you know, opioid uh, overdose deaths were surging, very similarly to be the beginning of the AIDS epidemic. And we realized that a lot of people were going to die. Well, I don't take drugs. Doesn't matter. Yeah, I don't take drugs. It doesn't matter. You still may be in a situation where you're seeing someone who's in Yeah, we yeah, see I everybody. Could, I, could, I could do yeah, that. Nah. Harm reduction is all about treating people like human beings. Just treating someone decently like you would anybody else is, is a kind of intervention. Often a, a simple engagement, um, I think like just offering somebody a tool that can help save their life is really effective. For Simmons' friend Robert Keyless, his belief in harm reduction was born from experience. He's been in recovery since 1991. Harm reduction is not a simple a, a simple, how can I say, a, a simple thing to explain to individuals. They, they just don't understand what it is when you're talking about harm reduction, you know what I mean? Harm reduction to them is like, oh, you want me to stop using. No, I don't want you to do anything you don't want to do. I just want you to use safer. Safer is a way of saying you're reducing your harm. Was there anything like harm reduction when you were using? Oh, no, no. Other than the, than the, the spiritual aspect of it, with my family taking me into a, a, a church and let them pray over me, that was harm reduction as far as they were concerned. You get the devil out of you, right, so to speak. What was your drug of choice? Well, heroin was my drug of choice. Heroin. Though I was, I wasn't uh, ashamed to say I used whatever drugs came my way. But if we talk about drugs of choice, it was heroin. But when you were using, fentanyl was not on the scene, was it? I don't believe it was. We never heard much of fentanyl. It was always straight up, straight up heroin. Would you, want, would you want to carry this? No. Yeah, why not? He's okay. not doing that. Oh, you want to do all that? Yeah, he does. I mean, I'll carry it and, and, and see if... But as Keyless points out, his experiences through the early days of the HIV AIDS crisis illustrate how even with the presence of a known risk like infection, or a potentially deadly overdose, it can be difficult to reach users. They started to give it a name, HIV. And how do you get HIV? Well, we're getting it mainly through injection drug use, right? And we really didn't care. We used. Today is the same situation. They don't care, they use, right? Knowing, knowing that there is a fentanyl, maybe in the mix of the product they are buying, they're still using it. So where does that leave things then? Well, we think that we have to really improve the message, right? And, and, and a way to deliver that message with, uh, with enough information and enough force to make them realize the danger that's involved right now. You know, dangers that you didn't see back then, but dangers now. Does the fact that New York now has an office dedicated to harm reduction, does that change your work? Does it help your work? We'll see. <laughs> I don't know. This is going to be a process, but it's it. Sometimes it takes a really long time, and in the meantime, a lot of people die. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. Yo, thank you, my brother. Anytime. Anytime. I'm always here. Anytime. You see us. You know what we're about. You know what I mean? We don't. Understandable, and that's good. Well, Simmons says she applauds the broader adoption of harm reduction. She worries that the activists, researchers, and users who are instrumental in this moment risk being pushed aside as harm reduction becomes part of the political discourse. And the discourse surrounding harm reduction is probably nowhere near as intense as it is in Harlem at the moment. Most of the time the question is, is there heroin? Yes. How much heroin? Well, there's approximately between 14 to 24%. Yurelix Yastrata has perhaps one of the most nuanced views of New York's overdose epidemic. Sitting in a tiny corner office of Harlem's On Point, one of the city's two overdose prevention centers, known as an OPC, she spends her days testing the substances running throughout New York City's drug supply. So we need about half a grain of rice to put on the machine, which... So what's on there now? Is that heroin? Uh, yeah, this is, I mean, this is dope. Dope. It's a cocktail of things. We sometimes find heroin, but it's very, very, very rare. Why did you, why did you smile? Because of my naive question? Yeah. yeah. So it's called dope because it's 
It's this is a cocktail of substances stuff. at this point. Yeah. Estrada's yeah. efforts are paid for by the city and organizationally separate from the OPC. It is one of four testing locations in New York. I've learned a ton about the supply, how the supply changes, what leads to overdose, why overdoses happen. I think some of the, the really cool things that I've learned is that people are really into learning about their drugs. The testing takes about 20 minutes and it's entirely optional for the people who come through On Point's doors. Obviously we see a lot of fentanyl and when we see very large amounts of fentanyl, when the person doesn't know that it's there, then the person can have an opiate overdose, which is um, respiratory depression usually, and then the person stops breathing altogether and that's when they, they pass away. The sample she tested while I was there included a mixture of substances. I found mannitol, I found heroin, I found procaine. Procaine is kind of like a local anesthetic, kind of similar to lidocaine. There is an amount of, of fentanyl that is significant. The person who brought this in had been using a supply that they felt was very strong and because they took it and within half an hour they were blacked out. And in that moment for them it's really scary because as they feel it happening they're like, either I'm gonna go to sleep for a long time or I'm not gonna wake up. Is it hard to give them back the drugs to know what's, what's on the other side of your interaction? So yeah, you know, there's been times where I tell someone something that's particularly dangerous in there and all I can tell them is, this is really potentially dangerous. Please go use in the overdose prevention center. Here at On Point, that means they can walk just down the hall and unlike any other city in the country, consume their drugs under the supervision of an overdose specialist. Here, I'll put them on your booth for you, okay? I got you, boss. Today, it's Ray Samuelson who'll be watching. And like most days, he's busy. Um, people could come in as many times as they want throughout a day. We don't provide any drugs, anything like that. Just a safe uh, place to supervise people while they do use and clean supplies to use with. The eight semi-private booths are each equipped with a mirror, giving the user a bit of privacy and Samuelson the ability to keep tabs on how someone might be reacting. I'm really monitoring breathing. I'm looking for physical signs of breathing, lip flare, mouth opening, chest rise, and then I'm also looking for lack of, lack of oxygen. So discoloration of face, eyes rolling back in the head. The beauty of this site is we're able to respond so quickly that 80% of the time, the only intervention I'll have to do is get an oxygen mask on somebody. So I'm monitoring them right when the needle goes in. I'm seeing when the breathing is slowing down. I could put an oxygen mask on, a sternum rub, some pain stimulus, take a big breath, take a big breath, and that's all I'm gonna have to do. And this happens far more frequently than on point and the city initially estimated. The city of New York estimated 134 overdoses between our first two sites in the first year, and we were over 700 overdoses in the first year. Today, I've already reversed three overdoses. Today? Today. Yeah, it's only 1 p.m. If more than oxygen is needed, Samuelson will turn to the overdose-reversing drug Narcan, but only a small quantity. So when I do use Narcan, or naloxone, I'm using a 0 .4, uh, 0 0.4 milligram intramuscular injection. So it's a microdose of naloxone, a tenth of the dose really small amounts, slowly bringing people out of overdose, not bringing somebody into withdrawal. When you're in withdrawal, you're gonna feel sick, wanna use again. And then in two hours, when this Narcan wears off, you could go back into overdose. So when I do use Narcan in here, I'm really confident when somebody leaves this room to the medical center or to the holistic center or just out into the street, I'm really confident they're not going back into overdose. So your day, is this the first shot of the day? Yeah. Yeah. And so will you come back later or are you done for the day? Don't know. No, I'm, I'm done for the day. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't abuse it. 46-year-old Yedidaya Israel has been using heroin since his mid-30s. He started coming to On Point eight months ago. Do you feel safer as a user because of the OPC? Yes, I do. I, I know that they're going to give it their best shot if anything does happen. You know, they're going to they're gonna go all out. On Point's Harlem and Washington Heights location are the only two sanctioned OPCs in the country. Supported with money from the city and private foundations, the center opened in November 2021 with the approval of then New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio. Sam Rivera, a longtime activist in the harm reduction movement, was brought in as executive director. We've had over 70,000 utilizations, 70,000 times people use drugs that would have been in the street, in the parks, 70,000 times they used in here. Rivera says there are roughly 3,200 registered participants who use On Point's facilities, a small fraction of the estimated 100,000 intravenous drug users in New York City. So we're talking about 
a very successful response to a very small minority of the using community. Right? I also tell people, look at, look at it differently. Many of the overdoses we responded to in these rooms would have, not, would, would have led to death in a community. With the impact and what's happening with the uh, drug supply these days, people are almost having to use an OPC to stay alive. Right? We're responding to an overdose in seconds, where in the community, they almost don't know how long. Minutes, hours, we don't know. But not everyone is happy with On Point. A 2021 piece from the PBS NewsHour highlighted neighborhood anger. They've been just dumping these types of facilities in black and brown areas because they get less political support. And I'm not blaming the patients because that's a mental illness. I totally understand and I get it. But it's still something that the community shouldn't have to experience on a daily basis. What about the criticism that this is an example of facilities that are addressing marginalized communities or challenged communities that's been placed in a black and brown neighborhood? Yeah, a, a couple of things. We've been in this neighborhood 22 years. So that's the other thing people say, you know, you brought this here. We've been here 22 years. And quite frankly, uh, we are where the issue is of the 3,000, 3,200 participants, registered participants in the program. Most of them are folks we've been working with for years. Given the length of your time in this world, where do you think we are as a city in the, our relationship with drugs? Oh, wow. We're so far behind. You know, when you think that OPCs have been operating all throughout the world for 35 years, 36 now, that's sad. That's, that's a real, real problem. Uh, this amazing, powerful America is late. There are people in pain, man. Like, there are people, people are using to self-medicate trauma, pain, all kinds of, of deep, deep-rooted concerns and issues, uh, mental health conditions, and they're being judged for that. Before I left, I asked Rivera about the large earrings he wears, two empty canisters of naloxone. My earrings. So these are two human beings, right? These are two folks saved uh, uh, in the rooms. So this is naloxone. They were used to reverse an overdose. And so whenever I travel and I have them on, um, I feel like I'm walking with two souls, like two of our people uh, that, that reflect our, my favorite data point, which is zero. We've had zero deaths. All those numbers I gave you, zero deaths. What we know is drug users never have to die again, ever, of an overdose. They just don't. We're proving it. I mean, how much more, right? How much more data do you need? But with drugs in New York, the data shifts as the substances running through the supply are always changing. In the early winter of 2022, Urelix Estrada started to detect the increasing presence of a strong animal sedative, xylazine. It's a veterinary tranquilizer, so it's not an, it's not an opiate. Um, and it's, it's contributing to some of the difficulties of responding to overdose, but the primary issues that we have with it is intense sedation because it is a tranquilizer and the effects that it has on skin. Um, like ulcers, wounds, and ulcers and wounds that don't heal. Present in the drug supply since the early 2000s, in recent years, xylazine has been used more frequently as an adulterant, a substance added to the drug mixture to increase the quantity. According to the DEA, about a quarter of the fentanyl they seized in 2022 contained xylazine. And this past April, the Biden administration called the combination of fentanyl and xylazine, quote, an emerging threat. And New York Senator Chuck Schumer sounded the alarm. Xylazine is deadly. It's dangerous. It's here. But to those in the New York City research community, the arrival of xylazine, while bleak, is just the latest chapter in the city's ongoing relationship with drugs. So new drugs are always emerging. Dr. Daniel Ampad is a researcher with the NYU School of Public Health. It's a challenge because we do not have a safe drug supply for people who use drugs. Because um, we're such a hub for all different sorts of people, um, there are lots of different drugs that come in and out that get test marketed. I would love for more drug testing to be available and made available to um, people who use drugs so they can make informed decisions about how they're going to use something if they're deciding to use something. And we don't have that here. Dr. Ampat's colleague, clinical assistant professor Courtney McKnight, 
recently found that only a small fraction of New York City's users actually know they're consuming fentanyl. People have no idea what's in their drugs, what concentrations, um, and then that's affecting their ability to be able to be safe. Between October 2021 and December 2022, McKnight and her colleagues interviewed over 300 regular New York City users. 18% reported they had intentionally used fentanyl, but toxicology reports found that 83% of the respondents had, whether knowingly or unknowingly, consumed fentanyl. A lot of people don't want to be using fentanyl. That is definitely what came through very loud and clear in our research is that, you know, people want to be able to go back to heroin. Don Desjardins has spent decades researching drug use in New York. One of his very first studies was during the earliest days of the HIV-AIDS epidemic. His work helped inform the burgeoning clean needle movement in New York City. And once there was a lot of syringe exchange at a public health scale, uh, the infection rate went down by 80%. 80%? Yeah. How long did it take to get to that place where you had the research community and the public accepting? 10 years. 10 years. And it was the, the, pu the public and the political leaders and the political leaders who wanted to play political games with the lives of people who use drugs that was the greatest source of resistance. Desjardins has brought this long view to his current research, examining ways to encourage users to inhale their dope as opposed to injecting it. How do you think that early experience informs what your research is looking at now? In one sense, it's very, very optimistic that uh, things can be done. Uh, despite the common stereotype, people who use drugs are, are quite concerned about their health and they're quite good at changing their behavior if they have the means to do so. I mean, getting people to completely stop using drugs is extremely difficult, but getting them to use sterile needles is very, very easy. Did the arrival of fentanyl alter your research at all? And if so, how? Yes. Prior to fentanyl, we thought the research and the public health movement is a tremendous success. We took on the HIV epidemic, and at least in New York, we were very, very successful in really ending the epidemic. And now fentanyl has led to tremendous increase in deaths. I mean, the, the opioid preve uh, overdose prevention centers certainly work, but scaling them up to the uh, number of injections would be extremely difficult. Are you surprised, given all the work you've done, that we are here? Not too surprised. Science is never going to get rid of psychoactive drug use. The human ner nervous system likes drugs too much. But we can use science to develop ways to reduce the harm associated. It's not easy, it's not smooth and such, but over a long period of time, we've seen harm reduction uh, for heroin, we've seen it for marijuana, we've uh, seen it for uh, nicotine. As a scientist, I have sort of have to believe that uh, society is going to be capable of incorporating scientific findings to deal with public health problems. Eventually. Eventually. But for those on the front line, they can't make plans on eventually. We need to acknowledge that and accept the fact that substance use disorder is an illness. Debbie and Fletcher Blake is the CEO of Vocational Instruction Project, known as VIP in the Bronx. Started as a jobs training center 50 years ago, VIP is the largest methadone maintenance clinic in the state, serving 1,500 patients a day. We're open from 5.30 in the mornings, so patients who work come in early in the morning so they can go off to work. We have about 30 to 40% of our patients on our morning shift, and we have people in care with us now for over 30 years. 30 years. What does it mean for someone to be on methadone for 30 years? What does this provide them? Stability. Methadone has been used to treat opioid use disorder since the mid-60s. A Schedule II controlled medication, the synthetic opioid reduces cravings and withdrawal effects from heroin. New York City's first outpatient clinic opened in 1969. 
I didn't think there was anything that can fix me. I thought there was no fixing. I thought I was gonna die using. John Pagan started taking methadone five years ago. He has been a heroin addict since the 1970s. And I just got tired of living the way I was living and, and, and doing the things I was doing, you know, the, the lying, the cheating, the conning, the manipulating, and, and especially hurting the people that love you the most, you know, but once you start using and, 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 uh, and get addicted, it's like nothing else matters. Nothing else matters. Drugs become your first love, and then we live to use and we used to live. Pagan says methadone has given him his life back. And do you ever feel withdrawal symptoms? I have it since I got involved with methadone. I haven't experienced any. Like, when I start going down, when I start going down from the dose that I'm in, I might feel a little jittery, but nothing, nothing as bad as being dope sick. When you're dope sick, it's so hard to get around. Your body's hurting, and then and, and it's so hard to walk and, and get started in the morning, you know. Since the earliest days of methadone maintenance, distribution has been highly restrictive. But like everything else, the COVID pandemic forced a rethink. The city started a pilot methadone delivery program, and following the relaxing of some federal regulations, VIP was given permission to distribute more than a single day's dose. We can give them up to a month amount of doses, up of doses of their medication um, for them to, so they don't have to come in every day. And before COVID, you weren't allowed to do that? They had to come in every day. So it's a game changer. It is game changer. People started to realize to realize that um, treating people was more than just giving them what you think they need and not meeting them where they were. So a big part of meeting people where they are is where we're currently sitting. Absolutely. Where are we currently sitting? We are sitting in our brand new mobile clinic. It's mobile medication, mobile methadone unit is what it's called. We are now on the streets. We are everywhere. Um, providing services, fentanyl strips, xylosine strips, um, education, food, you know, whatever is necessary to get people into treatment. With financial support from Oasis, this mobile methadone clinic is the first of a proposed 11 vehicles. Despite having so many new opportunities open up for you, where would you say the city is in terms of the overdose epidemic? The city is struggling. You know, the numbers are still very high, and the city's looking for innovative ways to bring those numbers down. One small city effort is underway on the corner of Decatur and Broadway in Brooklyn, in what the city calls a low barrier strategy to connect people to harm reduction supplies. They've installed a vending machine filled with naloxone, safe injection kits, and safe smoking kits. Anything inside the machine is free to anyone in the community. All you will have to do is enter a zip code, any zip code within New York City. Elon Kwashi is the program director of Restore and Recovery, part of New York's services for the underserved. Does the fact that you're stocking this machine now and the fact that this machine is sitting here, does this represent some type of change in the way you're doing things and more importantly, the way the city is doing things? Yes, yes, I believe so, because um, it's kind of bold, right? Some people probably think we're teaching people how to use drugs, but we actually are not. We're just providing tools to actually have individuals who are struggling with drug use use safely, right? Because the end game is to actually probably stop your, your, your misuse, but that can be challenging. What do you say to people that say, oh, this is ridiculous. You are teaching people how to use drugs. Um, probably just more education, right? Try to educate them more around what each product is and the use of each product. Um, and just try to come with, with a more, uh, uh, just having more empathy for, 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 for people in their struggles. Everything in there has our name and number on it, and we're hoping that as you use safely, you can survive what's going on in, in the world so that you can get to care eventually. Rebecca Lynn Walton is the chief clinical officer at the Office of Behavioral Health at New York City Health and Hospitals. As it's become more pervasive, everyone's been touched. And so if it's my aunt, if it's my sister, if it's me, then that means that someone knows me. And so they can, un they can see the pain. And for so long, it was over there and I didn't have to pay attention to it, people can say. 
but now you can't ignore it. With one of the highest overdose rates in the city, the location of this vending machine is not accidental. We want it in a location where there's a lot of foot traffic. We want it in a location where there's a lot of overdoses so that it has the most impact and gets the most people saved. While the vending machine opens an additional avenue of distribution for harm reduction supplies, it's also providing the city with data. On the back end, we're able to receive uh, and see all the zip codes entered as well as all the supplies requested. Ian McHale is the director of overdose education and naloxone distribution with the New York City Department of Health and Mental Hygiene. We're able to look at the dispensing, see what supplies are being utilized, um, and then be able to continue to evaluate the project and be able to inform the future of this project with the community engagement and needs assessment and our distribution to see, hey, maybe we need to include more naloxone or maybe we need to include uh, more first aid kits because those are being utilized more often than other supplies in the machine. So let's fast forward a year from now. Are there machines all over the city? Is that what you hope? Or are there machines in strategic locations? Yes, yeah, so over the next year, we hope to launch uh, all four machines for this pilot and then continue to assess and evaluate the project and then hopefully in the future be able to use our knowledge from this pilot to expand uh, access and to be able to expand locations across New York City. The information from this machine may well influence the ways in which the NYPD continues to assess its response. We should let the evidence, we should let the data drive whether or not we're effective. Chauncey Parker is the deputy commissioner of the NYPD's Collaborative Policing Department, a branch of the police force that works directly with community partners and the city's public health agencies. If anybody thinks they can do this alone, um, whether they think there's a law enforcement solution or a public health solution or a community solution, we know that that's not going to be the answer, really not the answer for any challenge. So with the opioid epidemic, everybody has a, ro has a role. You know, it's really important that we've learned from this. It's really important that police officers carry naloxone or any first responder carries naloxone. How then would you categorize where the city is from the collaborative policing office in terms of the overdose epidemic? I don't know if we've ever been stronger. It's very challenging and in the, with, the, with the opioid epidemic, but we have, for example, every, every month, we have 75 people from 30 different agencies who come together, share ideas, brainstorm about ways that we can we can reduce overdose deaths. We have that same group comes together every 90 days and does a fatality review where you review a, a, a handful of overdose deaths all with the eye toward what could we have done differently to possibly have saved this life. Is there any conflict when we're thinking about some of the most radical changes? And I'm thinking in particular of the Overdose Prevention Center, the OPC. For the police department, is there any conflict philosophically uh, tactically with this broader harm reduction? I don't think it's from the role of the police department or anybody else in government to think philosophically in that way. I think our role is to make things better. And public health has said that this is a strategy um, to reduce overdoses and save lives. We're going to make sure that there's the evidence to support it. We're going to make sure that, they're, that we're also people are good neighbors to the people who live in the community. But we also have to be focused on drug dealing and drug selling of fentanyl and other really, really dangerous drugs that are killing people. Somebody sells drugs and they kill somebody, there gotta be consequences. Um, and so it's, it's a balance of all that together to have our communities be safe and to have our communities be healthy. For the Office of the City's Special Narcotics Prosecutor, it is also a matter of finding equilibrium. While agreeing harm reduction is necessary, there is concern that the response is becoming imbalanced. I'm not seeing enough just plain old straightforward prevention messages out there in the right place, reaching the right people. Bridget Brennan has served as New York City's special narcotics prosecutor since 1998. A unique position in the city of New York, she works in collaboration with the city's five district attorneys, investigating and prosecuting felony narcotics cases across all five boroughs. Normalization too is, my, is one of my concerns um, because it's the opposite of a prevention message. It's both a message that this is okay, and also when you see, you know, when children see someone who's looking sick and, and nodding out on the street and not being attended to, and then they just walk by with their parents, 
it's not sending a good message that we value human life. This person's sick. We're not helping him. You know, the whole thing, um, I just think there's got to be a better way. In September, this already tragic story took a particularly dark turn with the fentanyl poisoning of four toddlers at a Bronx daycare, one of whom died. What happened in the Bronx daycare center, I think, alerted everybody to how vulnerable we all are and what a hideous problem this is. I mean, the fact that little children could overdose in a daycare center where they're sleeping on mats above a hidden compartment storing fentanyl is horrifying. And if you think that the amount of fentanyl on the tip of a pencil could kill you or me. I mean, just think of how much it would uh, take to kill a little baby, just a, a minuscule amount. So how, how does the office feel about the Oberos Prevention Center? Long term, I, I just don't see that as a solution. And short term, I hear a lot of complaints that the facility itself attracts drug dealers, and I've been by, and they, it, there are drug, it's obviously, there's drug dealing going on right in front of it. And the people who are buying drugs are not necessarily going into the center. Um, they're going into the subway station nearby, the Metro North station, they're shooting up on the streets and the public bathrooms. And so that's what I hear from the communities. So, you know, I view myself as their voice, their public voice. Thinking then in the broader history of this office, where does this current chapter fit? Are we in a particularly dark period? Yes, this is, I mean, for me, this is the mo biggest challenge we've faced in terms of death, in terms of overdose death. Uh, the crack cocaine era was a devastating one too. But it didn't claim so many lives in overdoses. It claimed lives related to violence. Special Prosecutor Brennan said she worries that there's an imbalance with the emphasis on harm reduction that the message of prevention might get pushed aside. Do you share those concerns? I think the key thing for our strategy is we've got to um, be laser focused on this, on the North Star. And that is to reduce overdoses and save lives. Secondly, we have to be ideologically agnostic. We can't come with, this is my philosophy, or this is my opinion, or this is my gut feeling. What does the evidence tell us is gonna actually help us achieve this North Star of reducing overdoses and save lives? I think that too much we're um, debating, well, what should the police do? Or what should public health do? Or should we do prevention? No, maybe we should do, do treatment. Maybe we should do, oh no, I think it should all be harm reduction. That's gonna be our strategy. If this was really important, this overdose epidemic was really important, what would we do? We would do all of it. But even if all tactics are there, these tactics will run into a reality echoed throughout my year of conversations. People are always gonna use substances. People are always, there's always gonna be a demand. There is always gonna be a supply. And if we can get people from contracting things like hep C or HIV, anything like that, by using our harm reduction resources, they still have a chance at recovery without having permanent long-term effects. As part of Long Island's Family and Children's Association, Rebecca Silverman is the supervisor of the Sherpa program of Nassau County. She's also three years into her recovery. We are a crisis uh, program and a harm reduction program. Basically, we meet people bedside and we provide peer support as well as getting them connected with either detox, inpatient, outpatient, really whatever they want to do. When you say you meet them bedside, where at what beds? Um, so in the hospital, they will be flagged. Um, so if they come in and withdraw from drugs or alcohol uh, and they choose to meet with a peer, they sign a little waiver and we meet them within the hour and get them connected to whatever treatment they would like. 
So these are folks that have maybe just had an overdose, have near overdose, some type of medical distress. Yes. Yes. What's that conversation like when you are bedside with someone? What do you say? It's mostly like motivational interviewing. Um, sometimes they don't want anything, but usually they do agree to peer support. I like to tell them a little bit about myself and my story to make them feel comfortable. Like I was you, I understand, and basically tell them all their options for what they have for treatment, whatever that may be for them. It was one of these conversations that convinced Samantha Morales. It's really scary when, when you're going through something like that. And you feel like the loneliest person in the world and that nobody knows, but everybody knew. Morales' opioid story started as many did. She was in a car accident and after two surgeries on her neck, received a prescription for painkillers. Almost a little over five years ago, I was at home in my kitchen. I was living at, in Comac at the time. I was married at the time. I was taking um, prescription opioids and Valium at the same time. I just kept taking more and more, not realizing how much I had taken. And next thing I know, um, I collapsed on my kitchen floor. And my husband at the time um, called 911, called the paramedics. And um, I really don't remember how I got to the hospital. Obviously, I was taken by ambulance and I woke up in the hospital um, in a hospital bed. And I was greeted by an ER doctor explaining to me what happened. And I was stunned. I was absolutely in shock that I had had a near fatal overdose. And they told me I had to be Narcan three times. Morales is now a Sherpa peer advocate. She hasn't used since her overdose. I always disclose my story before I do Narcan training. I always tell people that, listen, if you pay attention, if you pay close attention, you could potentially save a life because I'm a person in recovery and three of these, I always hold it up and I say three of these saved my life. During her years of use, Rebecca Silverman says she never overdosed, but during her time with Sherpa, she has had to use Narcan. I don't live in the best area. Uh, there are working girls outside of my apartment building that I currently live in. Uh, they obviously use. Um, so uh, Thanksgiving, I was working from home. I heard someone screaming outside of my window. I look out my window, there's a girl literally sprawled out blue on the ground. I have about like five Narcan kits in my apartment. Um, I immediately handed my son to my boyfriend and ran downstairs and had to Narcan this girl not once but twice to get her back. Uh, luckily, there was a nurse that lived in my building who was out walking her dog and she performed CPR and she was very, very helpful. She was there first. So if it wasn't for her starting her, the rescue breathing, um, you know, I don't know if the Narcan would have brought her back. Do you know what happened with that girl? I do not know what happened with that girl. I did put a Sherpa card in her pocket before she was taken by the ambulance. Uh, I've seen her once since then. I know she survived, but I don't, no, she's not necessarily in recovery. I think she's still doing what she was doing, um, but she has that card, hopefully, so in the future we could help her and reach out to her. This past fall, the state released overdose numbers from the year before, and I decided to return the conversation to where I started with Mary Brewster. Has the situation improved in the last year? I mean, in terms of deaths, no. Um, the the, the um, data came out from 2022. We're always a year behind, of course, with our data. 
Uh, one person dies every 83 minutes in New York State. And that's, you know, that's the limitations of public health is we're always a year behind of knowing what's actually going on. Um, in talking to my, my teams that we fund, our outreach teams, just we know anecdotes aren't data, uh, but it's what we have right now. And it's just as bad, if not worse, than it has been in the past. Um, them going out in parks and finding people who are blue um, and thankfully getting there in time and having naloxone and being able to respond with the naloxone. But I think that it just seems as though it's not getting better. So then how do you quantify or qualify your efforts during the last year? I think we've been really successful. Um, I think we've been successful in thinking outside of the box and recognizing that not just Oasis providers work with people who use drugs. And so again, pulling them into our system, recognizing that harm reduction programs who have, I think, historically not been part of our system are a key player in this and we have to be engaging with them. I think through our naloxone distribution project, our home, um, harm reduction delivered, that's huge. Uh, the We almost can't keep up with the demand of people wanting the fentanyl test strips, wanting the xylazine test strips, wanting the naloxone. In the past year, Oasis says they have distributed over 1.3 million fentanyl test strips and hundreds of thousands of the newly developed xylazine test strips and countless doses of naloxone. So when you think of your year, has there been anything that's really surprised you as you ventured out to these communities and met with these groups and organizations? I, I think it's just the pervasive feeling of it, it's just happening everywhere. So truly, like, removing any barriers we possibly can, making it as easy as possible for people to be able to get the supplies that hopefully then, if a person is there to respond to an opioid overdose with the naloxone we supply, that number will start creeping up again. It won't be every 83 minutes, hopefully looking back to, you know, when I started in 2017, it was one person dies every eight hours. Like even then I thought that was staggering. I would, I dream of being able to be there again. Last year when we spoke, the numbers you were using was one person every three hours. Mm -hmm. So basically the new year of data, it's now one it's person every 83 minutes. Every 80, it's an hour and a half. We did the math. It was a really sad email. We were sitting there and just doing the math, and I just responded. I was like, this is just devastating. How did we get here? Um, but it's where we're at. Uh, and again, just incremental change is a harm reductionist. That's what we're supposed to celebrate is incremental change. But I think it's the hardest thing to, to celebrate is that incremental. We want sweeping change, and that's not realistic. If you or someone you know needs help, call the New York State Hope Line at 877-8-HOPE-NEW-YORK or text HOPE-NEW-YORK 467-369. Resources also are available from the New York State Office of Addiction Services and Supports at oasis.newyork.gov. Funding for this program is provided by the New York State Education Department.